Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 142. And the Weekly Word Podcast is an ultra-endurance resource for those of you that have not heard it before. In the Weekly Word Podcast, I discuss what we can do in order to achieve our ultra-endurance outcomes, our ultra-endurance best, even our endurance best. Most of this discussion is applicable to almost any endurance athletes. Ultra-endurance or endurance doesn't matter. I have found that the topics my athletes ask about, want me to discuss or explain in more depth, are what most ultra-endurance athletes are interested in as well. We talk training, nutrition, recovery, sleep, strength, strategy, balancing daily life, mindset, and the curiosity with what the endurance lifestyle unleashes within us, why it resonates so deeply with so many of us. I try to share and educate on how to reach an outstanding fitness level, because from there, we can take on almost anything. I talk about maintaining a strong mind and the mental resilience that comes with it, as well as the overall health in the form of nutrition, sleep, and recovery. I also try to deliver advice, observations, and tips for you, the athletes out there. So let's dive into episode 142. It's been a few weeks since I've recorded a podcast, and it's been a busy summer so far. So let me dive into where I've been and what's been going on. Last podcast was in early June, and now it's sort of on the latter half of June. Actually, it's sort of late June. And we had the typical end of school graduation ceremonies. Yes, for eighth grade <laughs> these days, there's graduation. And despite wanting to not participate because I'm surprised that there's such a big hoopla on graduating eighth grade, you sort of can't do that because your children see that others are celebrating it and you don't want to come across as somebody who completely ignores something while others are getting recognition. So our first week of June was pretty busy with those fun ceremonies, with two kids graduating <laughs> graduating from eighth grade. But then Emily and I also went to Park City for a week and did a bunch of cycling, trail running. Well, she isn't trail running, but I did a bunch of trail running with good friends of ours that have a that live in Park City, excuse me, that have a house there. Yes, because they live there. And it was just great to get out of California for a couple days, get some mountain air, some fresh air, some cooler air, and uh, be in a different environment. Not that their pandemic approach is that much different, um, but it it was still a different surrounding, um, different climate, and different places to train, in this case, cycling and trail running throw that at 9,000 feet, it was quite a contrast. So this week back home, returned from Park City over the weekend, I'm back to four kids, vacation or school break, I shouldn't say vacation. And, you know, busy everyday summer activities here. A topic I came across over the last few weeks because it's come up lately as a buzzword is the difference between endurance and stamina. As athletes, we come across the terms endurance and stamina frequently. 
actually these two words are used in the work world as well quite often. And I wanted to provide some clarity around how these apply to us as endurance athletes. Even the description, even the description of what kind of athletes we are has this component in it. Are we stamina athletes or are we endurance athletes? What do each of these really mean? Is there even a difference between them or are we using the words to classify the same process outcome? And as I've been thinking about this, I notice I use the term endurance a lot, but rarely use the word stamina. But it is important for me to understand that outside my wording, my world of communicating with you, my athletes, the terms are used often in a very similar, common, and confusing way. So let's break it down from scratch. And we're going to jump all the way across the spectrum here. We are familiar with endurance training on one end of the spectrum. And now on the other end of the spectrum is actually strength training, not stamina. And they seem to pull loyalty as well as outcomes in clear separate buckets. Can I strength train effectively if I'm an endurance athlete? You know, does it limit my time investment? Does it limit my gains? Is it worth it if I'm focused on strength training, right? The fatigue and the effort of strength training, how will that affect my endurance training? And then how will strength limit my ability to go long physically, mentally, and from a fitness standpoint? So if you look at that from a different perspective, is it worth doing strength if I'm fatigued, tired, mentally exhausted from going along, from doing endurance training? So those are the two ends of the spectrum, strength and endurance. One's shorter, one's more powerful, one's more um, fatiguing on a short-term explosive way. The other one is endurance. We get the fatigue by going along and it creeps up on us in a different way. So then the question becomes, where does stamina sit there? Somewhere on that spectrum is stamina. Where does it fit? How does it fit? What is its relationship with strength and endurance? So endurance is defined as the maximum amount of time that a given group of muscles can perform a a certain action. So let's say that again. Endurance is defined as the maximum amount of time that a given group of muscles can perform a certain action. When I work with athletes, most of them at least, On pure endurance, two themes are floating around in my head, going long and steady state. This would be the zone two approach of aerobic base building, ABB, as many of you have heard on previous podcasts, in which we emphasize not necessarily a pace, a wattage, a speed, but instead I'm looking for the athlete to accumulate high volume at a low intensity, at a low cost in order for there to be plenty of reps, as in workouts, so that we can do the work via frequency or long sessions. Long runs or many runs per week, same for bike or swim or a combo of both. Am I doing long days, meaning long workouts in those days, or am I doing multiple workouts in those days with the same accumulation of fatigue? 
So that's sort of where the z- and zone two and the endurance starts to materialize, where we start to get a good understanding of it. Can I go long at a low intensity, maximum amount of time that a given group of muscles can perform a certain action, bike, run, swim, or a combination of them? Actually, it could be anything like rowing, hiking, right? Anything where you're doing something pretty steady for a maximum amount of time. And it's usually at a low output, low effort, low on the scale of, you know, intensity. Your ability to do something for a very long time repetitively at a low intensity. That's sort of where endurance falls in. And as the athlete gets more familiar with my training, this zone two approach turns into a feel question. Knowing what easy aerobic means with our usual focus of easy on easy days in prep for hard on hard days. So now we have stamina. Stamina is defined as the amount of time that a given group of muscles can perform at at or near maximum capacity. So there's a subtle but clear difference there. Defined as the amount of time that a given group of muscles, still the same as endurance, can perform at at or near maximum capacity. So now we're at threshold. Now we're just below our ceiling. Now we have some sort of measurement and value to what the output is near or at maximum capacity. Stamina is often where things get confusing. And in my opinion, is where most athletes get it wrong. This is the gray zone. When we go too hard on easy days and too easy on hard days, because we're sort of not clear of the difference between stamina and endurance. Athletes might confuse stamina and endurance for the same thing. Just going along is what I mentioned in endurance. But in those words is a clarity. There is no pace mention, no watts, no speed, no specificity, right? It's more about feel, easy, aerobic, low heart rate, zone two, accumulating time slash mileage, not accumulating time slash mileage at a set intensity above easy. Now, of course, we want to do said activity in a clean, technically sound good posture, well, you know, executed good form way. And that is at easy or at the higher intensities. That's something we don't want to overlook. But in order to go long, the key is feel easy. The ability to go way longer if you wanted. And many of you have heard this from me before. For many, this is what zone two feels like. And many of my athletes know the description for this. You feel as though you should be able to do the said activity for two or three times as long. If you're going for an hour run, you should feel like at this pace, I could run another hour. If you're going for a two hour bike, I feel like I could be able to ride another two hours at this effort level intensity and it not tax me too much. That is usually a good sign that you're going easy enough. If you're not slowing down dramatically, becoming too fatigued, then you're going easy enough to do said activity twice as long, three times as long. 
that gives you a good sense of endurance too. As the definition mentions, perform at a capacity for stamina. Not necessarily looking for maximum capacity, which although the um, description has it in there, we're talking endurance and ultra endurance here. Of course, depending on the event, right, we adjust for how close to capacity, maximum capacity, or even over maximum capacity we go. But surely there's a defined capacity, threshold, VO2 max, tempo. In order to perform, we need to have a qualifier, pace, effort, heart rate, watts, whatever, as well as a defined effort for the distance we are preparing for. A 5K runner will work on a different stamina than a marathon runner. Olympic distance triathlete will work on different stamina than an Ironman triathlete, as I was just mentioning. It depends on where on the spectrum we're looking for a stimulus that we will then apply stamina, effort, and intensity, and definition, and capacity to it. So stamina is more about running at a certain distance in a certain time, a 10K in X amount of time or holding a specific pace in the pool for 100 repeats, or holding a wattage on a bike for a certain length of time. The key difference here is simple. Endurance is going along, and we are learning, teaching, absorbing what that means to go along, physically and mentally, what going along is like, and what happens to our body. But for stamina, Performing at a defined capacity is about using that endurance of going long to do it better, stronger, faster, smarter, as I always like to say. In my coaching, and many of you have heard this, we build endurance and then we layer stamina on top for outstanding fitness. It's what we often talk about also on this podcast. First, learn to get comfortable and good at doing the distance. And then we'll start thinking about doing the distance that we've learned to become relaxed and efficient and smooth at. Now let's take that distance and do it faster, better, stronger, smarter, more effectively. That's stamina. In order to build on that endurance, we need stamina. And that stamina is done effort levels and capacity. Capacity being capacity of what you can handle that day. And this is where another confusing component comes in. We describe what each is in regards to endurance and stamina and sort of how I work them into the training. But those are general categories. Now we need to make them more specific for you, the ultra endurance athlete. For my big mountain ultra runners, high mountain climbers, we work on the bulk of training around ABB zone two, low intensity, but high volume, frequency, zone two work. Once that base is strong enough to support higher intensity intervals, stamina, and sport specific muscular endurance, more to come on this, those workouts can be layered on top of the bread and butter endurance sessions, especially as the athletes get closer to their adventure, expedition, event, etc. So big volume, sprinkle in intensity on top of that stamina, and then some sport-specific muscular endurance work 
to really um, put the topping on that fitness. Yet as many of you know, I also work with many other types of athletes, military operators, adventurers, solo sailors, ultra-distance cyclists, paddleboarders, firefighters, ultra-spartan racers, rescue swimmers. How do these pillars of training interact for them? Well, we need to add another component back into what we were talking about before, and that is in the beginning we talked about strength. And how does it fit into this discussion? We need strength on the other end of the spectrum in order to absorb and handle the third component of endurance training, capacity. Capacity is the ability to recover quickly. The effort, the prescription didn't tax us too much and use multiple muscle groups requiring your cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, and central nervous system to work together efficiently for a particular time. Again, you need to be at a fitness level in order to handle this, and this is quite confusing. But let's break this down as well. Capacity are often the multi-mode muscular endurance workouts I prescribe in my strength and chassis integrity work. Why? Little rest, what what we said above, recover quickly, activating multiple muscle groups via different exercises brought together, mixed modality, activating cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, um, and central nervous system, and work together for a particular time to to create fatigue, endurance plus stamina. So for triathletes, that's bricks or swim run, or some of my Dave Scott workouts. Not a lot of work recovery, right, from the bike to the run and using different muscle groups, bike to run. Or swim run, different muscle groups, short rest, going right to running. Multi-mode, right, mixed modality. Dave Scott, one of my favorite workouts, bike, run, bike, run, bike, run, (laughs) bike, run, you know, six or eight back and forths at certain distances or certain effort levels. So again, for a Dave Scott workout or for a bigger swim run workout, where we're going swim to run to swim to run to swim to run, we have a long window of time, let's say six hours or five hours that we're doing this repetition. Are we fit enough endurance for five hours? Yes. Do we have the stamina in those five hours to effectively do the proper effort level intensity? Yes. Now, with little recovery between the two and applying the different muscle groups and applying the different disciplines, do we have the capacity to do those five hours? And that's where it all comes into play, right? So, Endurance for five hours, stamina for five hours, and now capacity for five hours. But back to, well, Chris, you said strength. In order to properly handle the mixed modality, we need to be strong enough to do said movement before we insert it. So for example, in the gym, we can't do a variety of different movements, exercises, in this case, strength, or core if we can't handle the activity on its own if we're not strong enough 
to do said movement or activity in the mixed modality, multi-mode gym aspect, what I call the grind, right, is your ability to do that cleanly and effectively before we do short rest and add another component and another component and another component. It's the same thing as the swim run example. We can't do swim run, swim run, swim run if we're not swimming effectively or efficiently or have the fitness or the technique to properly swim alone by itself in the first place or run properly effectively alone in the first place. We can't put two components, three components, six components, 10 components together if not done effectively. And so where we see mixed modality a lot, especially for the time crunched athlete and using our limited training time to this maximum effect is in the gym, right? You switch up a variety of movements, stations, they used to call it, um, things like that with little, like for example, um, orange theory. Great, right? That's mixed modality. You're moving station to station to station. But if you can't do said activity by itself, aren't fit enough, strong enough, have the stamina and the endurance for each and good motions and good movement strength, then making it a mixed modality is a waste of time. You're only actually doing harm, bad form, not enough endurance, not enough stamina in order to do full hour, full 30 minutes, full 20 minutes. So it becomes a game of building all this effectively. The takeaway here is that work capacity is basically sports-specific muscular endurance work, right? We're taking them, like the swim run example or the Dave, run, Dave Scott example, and inserting many different activities that fatigue us in a different way to build up a bigger endurance platform, taking the fitness we have, taking the endurance we have, taking the stamina we have, and now making it sports specific. And that brings me back to what I was talking about earlier. How do we do this for military operators, for adventurers, for solo sailors, for ultra distance cyclists and paddleboarders, for firefighters, for ultra Spartan racers, rescue swimmers? We build the modality together in different pieces and components once they have the endurance to then apply endurance and stamina layer on top of that, we put this muscular, sports-specific, event-specific um, work on top, muscular endurance work. We add another component to it, mixed modality. So stamina is your ability, and we've seen this in many athletes, right? Endurance, a lot of people can build a great endurance platform. Stamina on top of it, a lot of people can bike strong forever, but then can they run? A lot of people can swim or run long forever, but can they swim in between those pieces? That's where things get a little bit more difficult, the mixed modality. I can run forever, I can swim forever, I can bike forever, but if I put the three together, what happens? Things get a little screwy. It changes the level that we're able to do it at. Let's say, for example, you take some, uh, in many triathlon examples, or even, even ultra running examples, saying to said athlete, one of the best cyclists in the world, he or she then joins the triathlon world and they're no longer one of the best in the world. 
they have to build up that mixed modality, that capacity, that sport-specific endurance muscular work in order to then bring out their best abilities. They can cycle strong forever, but once you add a component of swimming and running to it, and the same we've seen in ultra running, you can take a world-class marathoner and put them into ultra running in the beginning, oftentimes until they get the knack, the hang of it, which I would describe as sport-specific muscular endurance work. They struggle, not quite like, like a beginner, no, but more to the fact that they're not at the same front of the pack elite level as they were in marathoning. And you would say, you know, they have the ability to run four, five, six hours comfortably, efficiently, but now throw in sports specific hills, steep uphills, hiking, steep downhills, technical trails, routes, no rhythm in their running because the, the terrain is changing, the footing is changing. All that turns it into mixed modality. And so that's where these three terms truly come together. Endurance, layer on top of that stamina, and layer on top of that capacity. Mixed modality, muscular, endurance, sport specific. For my military operators, call them athletes too, the aim of training is overall physical readiness. So not for an event, they have to be ready every day. They can't just choose in six weeks from now. <laughs> they have to be ready every day for any type of event. Endurance, stamina, and work capacity is weighted and programmed differently for the for than somebody getting ready for an event in 10 to 12 weeks. The military operators, they need to make sound decisions when fatigued. They make need to make leadership decisions when fatigued. So a lot of the training after endurance and stamina and is built up, which many of them have, their mixed modality work capacity work is actually about fatiguing them to still be in a state to recognize how fatigued they are or be familiar and build a confidence in that ability to still make good decisions, sound leadership decisions, good tactical decisions when exhausted, when fatigued, when broken down, the decisions that other lives depend on. So it's a question of your thinking brain, right? You want to be sure that you're familiar with exhaustion, fatigue, mixed modality, sports-specific endurance work, right? In this case, it's that your body is exhausted, but you're familiar with being exhausted. That's why, for example, in BUDS and SEAL training for, for SEALs, BUDS, or let's say Ranger schools, the goal isn't necessarily that they're doing something very unique. The goal is to just break them down continuously to then evaluate their decision-making when that sleep fatigued, sleep deprived, when that physically fatigued, when that mentally fatigued, and when that spiritually fatigued, you know, away from family, tired, um, beat down. Now, how do you lead? Now, how do you persevere? Now, what kind of decisions are you making that other lives depend on it? And that's where endurance training, stamina, and capacity have a mix as well. None of them do I work on their sports-specific 
ability and skills. That's stuff I don't know. But creating an environment, an event, a work capacity of mixed modality to create that type of fatigue is where I do contribute. Um, whether it's Rangers or Green Berets and so forth that um, I've put guys through. And I know there's, I'm not going to get into the details of what each school and how it works, but it's more a question, and that's all public knowledge. It's more just a question of how do I create that for the athlete? For one athlete, that might be a 50 mile run, right? Um, when their fitness level isn't quite there so that they have to overcome lack of fitness. And it's a 13, 18 hour event right? Fatigue in a different way due to physical continuous activity, fatigue um, and stamina being worked on, excuse me, not fatigue, but stamina being worked on because you're extending the fitness you don't have. You don't have the endurance. Now you're going over that and you're going deeper into a place that you have to overcome, persevere, and still make good decisions. And now we've created the fatigue and breakdown, disappointment, lack of confidence that I can do this event, let's say 50 mile run, 100 mile run at altitude in an environment that you are not comfortable with, not familiar with. And how did you persevere? Because you kick out of that with confidence, knowledge, ability, and so forth. So that the next time you're in a similar situation, you have patterns to go back by to and make sound decisions. Endurance aerobic capacity is still vital for these athletes, these operators, these different types of mixed modality athletes, solo sailors and so forth, right? Solo sailor is a very similar aspect. They're making decisions out on the open ocean in some gnarly terrain, but they, they physically, they don't have choices, <laughs> right? Um, you know, to sort of stop because their stamina or their endurance runs out in the middle of a storm. They have to keep going. They have to. They don't have a choice to then, oh, I'm done. I'm out of my endurance and stamina and capacity. I'm going to go to sleep while the, a storm is ravaging the oceans around them and, and their sails and their boat. Again, building up the familiarity of making good decisions, making sound decisions in some really difficult situations and how do we prepare that that's where we work on potential blind spots right a fundamental requirement for these type of athletes is to be ready for whatever gets thrown at them and that's where the fun training of multi-mode complex training is they need to be good at all the components at the same time all the time capacity stamina and endurance Spartan racers, for example, need a lot of work capacity, but it's still a 24-hour event, right? So their mixed modality, because they're going doing all kinds of different challenges and obstacles and different types of muscle groups and endurance aspects and so forth, 24 hours long, how do you respond to those challenges being thrown at you? That becomes a mixed modality game of us doing more mini events as we're getting ready for that. Almost every weekend, I throw things at these athletes so that they become more and more familiar with mixed modality things, unfamiliar, but yet showing that they have the endurance and stamina to deal with it to then do the proper 
you know, mini event or event itself better, stronger, faster, smarter. An ultra cyclist, same thing. They do that same struggle of, all right, I am now, well, they're not mixed modality, but 150 miles into a ride of their thousand mile ride or their 2000 mile ride, right? And so there is a question of endurance, but it's building up mental stamina, lack of sleep, lack of food, lack of hydration, and then still making good decisions. That's the same thing. You start working with the components there of endurance, huge platform. Stamina, not so much, um, not as much as for other athletes. And then capacity. Well, what's capacity for them? Well, you have to consider, you don't want to stay in the same riding position. You're going to be moving your body around and working on capacity with regards to fatigue of sleep and low blood sugar. And you can't eat that much as you're riding that far. So you're automatically going to be hungry a lot and thirsty a lot. And so the multi-mode aspect there is to create a similar situation in our simulations so that the athlete can become familiar with what they might be overcoming or dealing with them. Again, events on the weekends. Ride your bike on Friday from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. Wake up at 4.30 a.m. Ride your bike from 4.30 to noon. Rest 20 minutes. Ride your bike. You know, So there's many ways for us to put it together. But it's all just learning to put those three components together so that when the activity comes, the, the, the event in this case, or when you're called to duty, you're ready. So that's how these three sort of interact. And that's sort of the description or the in-depth um, explanation I wanted to go through when we're talking endurance versus stamina. Uh, the capacity aspect is sort of a little layer on top, that sport-specific muscular endurance work, and that's fine. Um, but I don't tie that into endurance and stamina as much. We have a conversation mostly around endurance and stamina, and that's the main difference between the two, going long and going similarly long with a specific required prescription of pace, effort level, wattage, and so forth, near or at maximum capacity. Of course, these concepts are nothing new, and you can find them all over coaching websites and coaching inputs, but how we apply them or how I apply them to the ultra endurance athlete, as well as the multimodal athlete and athletes of all different backgrounds is, has allowed me, I shouldn't say is, has allowed me to use these concepts for any type of athlete. And where I feel pretty confident in taking on athletes that are not the traditional athletes that I've done work with from ultra runners to triathletes to swimmers to, you know, marathoners to whatever around those components, taking into applying the concepts of endurance, stamina, strength, and capacity in some respects allows me to sort of work through something that they are looking to get ready for any athlete whether it's the ATV rider 
looking to be the first person to ride her ATV continuously from um, Baja to Alaska, I could apply the same concepts of endurance, stamina, capacity, and strength to that. It's more just a question of diving into and understanding what the needs are, the demands are, the physical needs, the mental needs, the strength needs, the endurance needs, right? Where the body breaks down, where we need strength, um, what the said movements and breakdowns are with regards to fatigue, with regards to lack of sleep, with regards to mental and spiritual disappointment, where the confidence and blind spots are and then starting to build a formula a prescription around that. So that's also why it's important for me to share, or not important for me, that's why I also like to share what those four words mean when you put them together into a training prescription. So I hope that's helpful for all of you, but I think the main component there is understanding endurance versus stamina and how it's come up a lot lately in conversation, in description, and it's always an underlying question that many have. What does stamina truly mean? Having put that behind us, let's dive into some emails here this week. Um, I have a variety of them. I probably have six of them that have come across over the last few weeks of not doing the podcast. Um, Here we go. Hi, Chris. Hope you're well. Thanks for all Thanks, as always, for continuing to put out great context um, or content, excuse me, amidst these strange times. I live in Staffordshire, England. My main event is a 50K on the 4th of July that has been canceled, but me and two friends decided we'd hold the date and continue with our training whilst coming up with our own 50-kilometer event that we'll do on the day instead. It's been fun planning the route, and even though we've been training solo until last weekend, The camaraderie of working towards a common goal and each of us looking forward to our self-curated event has proved to be great incentive to stick to the training plan. Training has helped me keep sane whilst working from home during a lockdown. And yes, this is on a side note here, what also what makes vacation planning so exciting um, with your family and so forth. Oftentimes, the excitement and the looking forward to it and the envisioning what it will be like and preparing for it and packing for it and having it on the calendar and researching the travel and locations, that's oftentimes more fun than what, than what the vacation often is. That's just the, the unpacking of everything we expected it to be. And in this case, the fun of planning and training and the camaraderie of getting all this sorted out for your own self-curated adventure is a huge component of the fun of the adventure itself. And then once on the 50K adventure, it's great. That's just the icing because now you get to sort of um, uh, act out, live out, apply everything that you've done over the last six to eight to 12 weeks, months, in prep for this to just let go and let it all happen and allow the adventure, the experience to unfurl in front of you. All right, I've listened to your 50 kilometer plan episodes and used the principles to plan my own training. For context, during the last month or so, I've averaged four runs and 31 miles per week. That's good, so a 50K per week. Um, I know everyone reacts differently and people have different needs, but here comes the question. 
What does a good taper look like or how would you plan the final two weeks of training? I've done a couple of 70.3 races before, but this is my first event of this kind. How long should my long run be the week before? What should I do on event week? P.S. This year is the first time I've actually really structured my training around zone two and I'm reaping the benefits. I did a six mile run in January at 945 pace and matched that run at the same effort level two weeks ago at 815 pace. Nice. So same heart rate, same distance, six months later or five months later. You bought yourself 90 seconds per mile. That's fantastic. I'm looking to do a five mile, one mile test next week. Um, Do you mind if I send this to you? He did, and I think I responded pretty quickly. So regarding the taper and how to go about it. So the taper is a different question, and which brings us back to endurance, stamina, capacity, and strength, what we talked about before. So let's just go back to the endurance and stamina questions. If we have a lot of endurance and stamina, and familiarity around the event, we can, we're more familiar with how our body will respond to the event. And therefore we could probably mess around with less of a taper because we're familiar with what the sensations of the event are. And if our endurance and stamina are quite high, if we built a big platform, we probably could do for 50 K, let's say, you know, uh, a, a two and a half to three hour run, 10 to 12 days out, you know, but I would like to wrap that around extra rest so that that three hour run feels great. So let's say two weeks out, you're decreasing your volume, um, pretty dramatically with more rest days in general for a lot of tapers, whether it's for Ironman, whether it's for hundred milers, whether it's for any type of event, all I like to start looking at it's not necessarily a formula but where i start is increasing the amount of rest and easy days relative to work and effort days so technically we all know that on a week i have one rest day usually for athletes and six days of training but of those six days of training let's say 10 workouts in those six days some days are doubles right of those 10 workouts, maybe five are with intensity and hard work, meaning higher level of intervals or longer bouts of low intensity. So then as the taper starts unfolding, maybe a second rest day a week, maybe we reduce the intensity to two days a week. Maybe we, I like to keep the longer Um, low intensity stuff in there quite long actually for my athletes because they're usually quite prepared for the event with regards to endurance so maybe a second rest day or reducing the intensity then a week later maybe a third day rest day or just two rest days and a um, only one intensity workout that week And then, you know, let's say for a hundred mile runner where they're getting ready for 24 to 36 hours of activity, um, a week later, we do three rest days or two rest days and a very easy day. But in there, we still have one long run. And those are going to start feeling better and better because the body's rested, less intensity adding up. And so that's also going to build confidence in those last few weeks, really feeling good and strong. And I'm ready for this. So... The last two weeks, I would have backed into that's how I would want to approach it. 
increase the rest, decrease the intensity, maintain some form of going long. Now, many of you might argue, well, going long fatigues me as well. And you're totally right. But two things. One, in ultra endurance and endurance events, our ability to go fast isn't as critical as our confidence in feeling connected to the distance. What that means is this isn't a track race. This isn't a swim where uh, a swim meet where hundreds of a second, tenths of a second become critical. This is an endurance event. And so we're talking minutes, even some cases hours. So our, we don't have to be that sharp with regards to explosive speed. So therefore we need maybe not as much rest because we keep the volume or the volume, the long run, the long bike or long day in the training. But you've come event day, feeling connected to endurance is going to breed a lot more confidence in how you're going to go through this event. What that means is if I do a 50 miler today and I felt I didn't do a long run since four or five weeks ago, I'm going to feel pretty out of shape. Although I'm not out of shape, but I'm going to feel like that. I'm going to question if I still have the fitness from four weeks ago where I felt pretty good and I ran a 50K on a weekday, right? And oh, yeah, I was tired. It wasn't fast because it was the peak of my training, but I felt pretty good, confident about my ability to do the distance. And that's where things get interesting, right? So we want to carry over that momentum, that confidence into our event. Now, again, are we our freshest? Maybe not. And as we progress as athletes, we learn to time that better and better to stay faster and fresher and can go and can um, look for more seconds and minutes versus half hour and hours because our confidence in our training increases and we can increase that gap since our last big workout because we've done the distances enough to know, oh, it's there anyways. I didn't need to do, you know, a three hour run 10 days ago to stay connected to that. I'm pretty confident in my past abilities and my past races and my past events and my past training over the years, <clears throat> excuse me, that allows me to then say, okay, I'm going to sharpen the edge more, more rest, and instead, um, look to go faster for the distance. Um, so I think that answers it. I know everyone reacts differently and people have different needs, but here comes the question. What does a good taper look like and how would you plan the final two weeks of training? In that final two weeks, to just clarify, I would do one more long run, wrap it around a lot of rest, maybe two rest days. So let's say you go long run on the Saturday, um, a week out, let's say do it half the distance of the 50k so in this case a 25k but friday is off and sunday is off and um, i would even do a thursday just an easy um short jog and then wednesday do something strong and explosive and fast some intensity so now you have wednesday intensity short explosive fast but quick recovery because it's a short workout Thursday is just an easy jog, you know, maybe 45 minutes to an hour. Friday is off. And then Saturday is half your race distance, 25K. 
and then Sunday is off. So you can see that allows for you to be recovered, feel fresh, and it automatically brings the volume down for the week. All right, here's uh, another, oh, it's a email along to that 50K taper info. Let me just make sure my longest run last weekend, Saturday, June 7th, was the first ever marathon distance. Over the recent weeks, I've done a 21 miler, fair few. Yeah, nothing that you can't still execute what I sort of described. Now, it might be a little bit different with regards to the exact, if you're going to do a 25K or not, a 20K maybe, but similar, I would take your longest run that you did in training, back off of that a little bit, let's say maybe 25%, and do that fresh. All right. This one's from Gary. Um, thank you so much for your help. I continue to make very nice progress based on all the information and guidance you provide. I'm training to run a marathon in mid-September and qualify for Boston. I can run seven miles at a BQ qualifying pace and keep my heart rate within the top end of zone two. I'm currently running around 40 to 50 miles a week. Plenty of running. I have three questions. What should be the target percentage of my weekly training at zone two, zone three, zone four? First question, can't answer that. Based off of history, what you're capable of, how many marathons you've run, your past training, your in, back to the concepts for today, what your endurance platform is, how you've built stamina on top of that, what type of strength and capacity work you've done in there. That's all part of it. Um, so it's hard for me to say, I don't know how long you've been running. Have you been running of this volume for since December? Or is this something new? I'm training to run a marathon in mid-September. It's more a question, is this your first marathon? And so forth. So hard to answer that responsibly. I mean, of course I could say, yeah, you want to do 80% zone two, 10% zone three, 10% zone four. But that's, you know, that's sort of your platform that you're starting with as well. Does that percent change as I approach the marathon date? Yes, in general, you want to, as we discussed before. Once you have the endurance, your ability to run 26 miles comfortably, so let's say you don't have to run full marathon in training, but your ability to run 20, 22 miles comfortably in training, and if that's a BQ you're looking to do, let's say, then you run that for four and a half hours. Um, that's fine. That's just your endurance, your ability to go along on an easy feel zone two platform. So then as you build your stamina, which is what you're talking about, running at BQ qualifying pace above it or below it, remember you want to move around the pace, not just figure on Boston qualifying pace. You want the ability to run faster for six miles, then slower for six miles, and then back to faster. If you can do those 18 like that in a percentage of BQ time, you're pretty ready. And so again, you're looking to increase your stamina because you've done the endurance, running 22 miles comfortably. So that's where you then need to insert, yeah, more zone three and zone four, again, to gently nudge your pace, your stamina up. And that's what we talked about at said capacity, at said effort, being able to hold a pace is your stamina. 
So in many cases, that becomes 30, 40% zone three, and a little bit of zone four, and then 50% zone two. Also, what heart rate zone should I target for the marathon? For instance, should I plan to run the first half of the marathon in zone two, and how much in zone three, zone four? Okay, so this is something many ask me about. We never, ever, ever, ever race in zone two. It's very rare that we race something where we're looking to race, not just complete or not just do at zone two. Zone two is way too easy for that. Zone two is our endurance. We don't want to train at endurance. We want to train. uh, We want to race. Excuse me. We want to train at endurance. We don't want to race at endurance. We want to race at stamina, right? That's why we're building that up. So typically for a marathon runner, we're looking at upper zone three is a great spot to look to run the marathon. Now give yourself some warm up to get there. It'll settle in to upper zone three. Can you see zone four a few times for rollers, for hills, for creeping into zone four? Absolutely. But that will give you a good guideline from where you want to be. Now you can't train at upper zone three, low zone four. That will fatigue you and put you into a hole that you have nothing to give on race day. What that means is when we train, we're often a little bit fatigued and so forth, and we suppress our heart rate. So when we are fresh and tapered and rested and excited for the event, um, we quickly jump into a heart rate zone higher. So what feels like zone two will actually be zone three on race day. And therefore, racing an upper zone three will come quite comfortably and easily. So all right, and then, uh, and how much on that? So I think that answers all of that one. All right, next question. I'm writing to say how much your last weekly word episode resonated. This is in June, so this is my must have been my June 3rd, the last one. Specifically the section on nutrition. Addressing my nutrition has been an objective of mine for some time. My pandemic resolution has been to take action on that front, and I recently started seeing a sports nutritionist. The discourse between you and Emily complemented my objectives well, and I took away several, several valuable insights. For what it's worth, I will also share a suggestion for a follow-up episode. My primary sport is distance running. As with many people in this sport, my history with nutrition involves some form of disordered eating. The topic is receiving increased attention, but all commentary I read or listen to is vague and hand-wavy. I suspect this issue pervades all of the sports touched on by your podcast. Some thoughts from you and Emily on the specifics may therefore be valuable to you, to your female and male listeners. Actually, a great topic and a great question and something I will save for a future episode. I read these sort of as they come in. So as you guys can tell, not very organized here. But um, it is a very common issue and something we see a lot of, we, Emily and I, um, in the ultra endurance and endurance space. It is disordered eating is absolutely a great way to describe it. And it's avoiding something. There's different psychological things going on there on food and our relationship with food in the endurance world. Now, don't get me wrong, not everybody, but there's plenty and an unfortunately big majority of athletes who are in the endurance sports world 
only to be able to eat what they eat the way they are craving to eat or to justify certain things with regards to food. And if they're not training, they stop eating. Or if they're looking to weight, lose weight, they train and eat less. And this whole relationship becomes very difficult, very damaging, very unproductive, very disappointing, and just breaks a lot of athletes down out of the sport. And it brings us back to the overtraining discussion we had a couple episodes ago, right? With, again, disordered eating created a situation where the body broke down so much that it will take years to rebuild that. Um, and so this is a topic I would love to dive into with Emily and do it more in a um, deeper fashion, maybe with another guest um, who can also add the psychological component to it. So it's something I will bring up in the future. I, I apologize for just throwing this topic out there like this. And um, because I know it hits a lot of vulnerable points for a lot of athletes. Um, and this isn't a female question. It's a male question in a big way too. And I would say it's about 50-50. We all have a stigma and under, or this, this false belief that it's only female athletes. No, the men struggle with food and their relationship with food and how they look in the mirror just as much if not even more and now i'm not saying how the relationship works with regards to that there's more men in the sport in general than women and therefore the numbers are skewed towards men that's what i'm you know i don't know the exact data but i know after doing this for 25 years coaching and being in the endurance world like this that guys struggle with this even more and it's just sort of bubbling below the surface and the overtrained athletes and the broken down athletes and the those athletes with past stories of eating disorders are remarkably high with regards to guys too but this is something um i will not dive into further right now because it's not my limited knowledge opinion is not something I just want to spread out there like that. So, um, but a topic we will definitely bring up. I will um, flag this for that. And I appreciate the question. Hi, Chris, wanted to take the time to thank you for all the work you put into your podcast. They are very informative, um, especially for someone who has recently gotten into the sport. I'm 65 episodes in. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you. And have catching up to do. You may have already discuss, discussed this in the future, in future podcasts, but I do have a question concerning running and breathing. Is deep diaphragm, excuse me, is deep diaphragmatic breathing through your nose only the best way to breathe when running, i.e. nitric oxide, etc.? Please let me know your thoughts. All right, I'm going to have to take a sip of my coffee before this. Um, no, it is not. <laughs> um, I know there's a lot of literature out there regarding breathing and a lot of new literature regarding um, breathing through your nose and when we're sleeping and just going about our day, especially in running. And again, I'm no exercise physiologist. I know what I know based off of many years of doing this sport, of coaching the sport, of reading in these sports. And I would like to say a lot of common sense. And that is 
when we are running, it is a huge oxygen needed um, activity. Uh, it requires a lot of oxygen uptake. We're using a lot of muscles, arms, legs, glutes. Um, we're propelling ourselves forward over um, terrain that requires that. And then so we're back to square one, right? That you need a lot of oxygen. And it is unrealistic to think that it's said activity, you can get enough oxygen in your lungs to then deliver it to the working muscles that require a huge amount of oxygen um, when running, especially long distances, even at a low intensity, and um, that you can get that without the assistance of an open mouth. It is just that simple. Um, and I would tend to argue um, that that approach of breathing through your nose is effective. I mean, yes, you could go that slow where breathing through your nose is possible, but we're not training then. Um, we're not looking for a prescription of a desired outcome and intent of that workout. And um, we can go that easy. And for active recovery, it might be an okay idea, but I think you get what I mean. So I would highly recommend... Um, paying attention to how you breathe, let's say when you're sleeping or you're sitting at your desk or when you're going for a walk or going through your day that you're breathing through your nose. But when you're training, we're looking for the maximum effective use of that limited training time that we have. And in order to build the fitness that we're looking to build, we need oxygen. And the mouth breathes in oxygen for a reason. All right. Um, I have an email here from one of my athletes, and I remember why I put it into this folder. And that is, we're seeing more and more events happening in the fall. And I don't want to say I told you so, but we talked about this. My athletes definitely know this because we talked about it on Zoom calls. But I also talked about this on this podcast. And that is being ready for a busy fall. And more and more events look like they are trying to happen in the fall and they will be overlapping in many ways. And given that the pandemic is starting to rear its ugly head in sort of a new way with regards to numbers going up in certain areas of the country and the, the, the curve, while it is flattened, it is not necessarily low or gone away. Um, so whether they actually, actually happened, these events, is a different question. But again, we want to be ready for if they do happen. So let me go take you through a scenario. Imagine you've trained for the last nine months, right? So the pandemic really shut us down in March. And you started in late November, early December, and prep for your summer event. And let's say you were that disciplined, engaged, excited, smart with regards to training effectively using your resources around you on training through the pandemic. Let's say now you're pretty fit and you see hope at the end of the tunnel that an event might happen or you've self-curated your events or you've just done a self-curated event to hold you over until the fall. Now let's say many of these events will get canceled again or pushed off until 2021 or beyond, who knows. But, and here's the big but, let's say an event does happen and you have the ability to get to it, do it, 
and you feel comfortable doing it? That's another question, right? You have to want to go and feel comfortable doing an event with many people around. If you don't, different conversation. But let's say you feel pretty good about doing it. It's outdoors. It's pretty spread out. It's pretty self-sufficient. Wouldn't you want to have the fitness and the ability and the confidence and the being prepared for to do it? That one opportunity to race. Many of my athletes have reached out over the last few weeks and shown me some events that have come up and let's say Ironmans and runs and certain events all over the world. And I, I, all my commentary back to them is take it, take what you can. If there's an event that you can do and you feel comfortable doing, of course, grab it, do it. It might be the only one you're doing in 2020. And now it might still not happen, as I said, but take what you can. And that's what I recommend to everybody I'm running into these days, whether it's your self-curated event whether it's your event that's been postponed and now being offered, grab it, take what you can. Of course, with that qualifier with regards to if you're comfortable. For example, for me with Tahoe, I'm excited and it's still gonna happen. It looks like it's gonna work well for me, my self-curated event and all the logistics are coming into play and working out nicely. So I'm gonna take it, it's August. I'm going to do what I can to make that happen. And if that's my only event for the year, so be it. But at least I did something and put my fitness and my prep to let it unfold and enjoy a week out in nature like that. So are there other events to get ready for? Yeah, but um, this one's the most organized the most adventurous, the one I'm looking forward to the most with friends and new friends. So yeah, same as with my coast ride. Right now, fully planning on the Oregon coast ride. Might it be canceled because of a second wave or something else? Possibly, but I'm going to plan and work and have my athletes and the participants work around that they're doing it and that we're going to have an amazing time riding down the Oregon coast back to San Francisco in late September. Outdoors, plenty of spacing, plenty of fresh air, plenty of logistics that you can execute on in order to keep everybody safe and at a good distance. Take what you can. All right, and the final email here from Alex. Chris, big fan of your work. Recently, I've been getting injured more often. All of my injuries are on the right side of my body, patella tendonitis, fifth metatarsal stress fracture, etc. My PT and other physicians have told me I have a functionally shortened left leg. Okay. Whenever I see my PT, he manipulates my SI joint, which supposedly resolves the issue. That being said, I'm still getting injured. I'm reaching out to see if you had any advice on heel inserts or anything at all to treat such issues. As also, if you know of any gait analysis experts out there that you respect, let me know. Well, Alex, again, I mean, I know this sounds like a broken record on a lot of these podcasts, but without knowing you better, it's hard to give you really qualified, fair advice. But I can give you my perspective and what I would do. And that is in this case, um, I would surely 
try different things. If one leg is shorter functionally, right? Not actually, but functionally because of tight muscles, because of knots, because of um, limited mobility, of course, that one leg will function and work differently and feel and work shorter than the other. Um, not sure if heel inserts in this case would help me. Again, I'm talking in my own perspective because I would be wondering more, well, now am I just reinforcing what's functionally shorter anyway and therefore making the situation worse? What's the long-term solution? For me, the long-term solution, if this, if this were my body, would be to figure out how to get that to fire, how to get that area to loosen up, how to change the posture on my running form, how to um, release all that tension and that area, how to activate those muscles and support muscles, how to stimulate muscle strength and growth and um, ability in that area so that my legs and my running form can go back to its originally intended smooth, um, technically sound way. So yes, gait analysis should help as well with that. Um, just even a video of yourself, seeing yourself running and breaking that down, breaking that down with somebody who knows a fair amount about running, sitting down with them, buy them a beer or whatever, and um, have them give you some insights as well as just videotaping yourself weekly, monthly of how you look running. And then making that adjustment based off of what you see of some great runners online. Um, Sage Canada has some amazingly simple, but effective videos on YouTube and breaks down running form and running tips and what we're looking to feel and how we're looking to strike the ground and how we're looking to carry our stride and how we're looking to improve all in those videos for free. So then you take your video and you compare it to his video and you can see, all right, well, that's what he's talking about. That's what I'm doing. What does he then say to improve that and so forth? So there's that's the technical side of it on how to improve my running form, gait, to improve that once I've released the area, once I've improved the area, once I've got more blood flow to the area, once I've strengthened the area, once I've um, lengthen that functionally shortened leg that I then don't continue to exasperate the situation or put myself back into that situation and therefore um, apply the things that I've grown, strength, activation, release, to the new running form or the, the improved running form to avoid this happening in the future. That's sort of the two-pronged approach that I would go for that. I hope that helps a little bit. All right, I think that'll do it for this week. We'll keep it short and specific. Um, we covered a variety of topics today. Hopefully they're helpful. Endurance, stamina, strength, and capacity. And we applied those concepts to some emails that we had. So it all tied together very nicely. We'll leave it at that for this week. And um, yeah. I have another um, podcast coming here in the next few days because I recorded it with an interview um, two days ago, I think it was. So I will post that up pretty quickly as well. But until then, get this one out. I'm going to head out and go camping with my kids now for the next two, three days and then be back in town. You know, summer, got to get outside. 
fresh air, probably distance. <laughs> and yeah, enjoy summer as it is currently. All right, that being said, have a great week, everybody. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay fit. Stay on this edge of knowing that you're a few weeks away from really digging in and having some great fitness in order to take on those events that might be freeing up here in the second half of the year. I know we're somewhat distracted by the last few weeks of summer and our ability to get outdoors and have a little bit more space with regards to cycling and running. I know many of you, your pools are starting to open up and we're back into the flow or somewhat of a flow of the training. Gyms are also opening up in some states and places. So here we are, we could be back into a full routine. What we also know that bubbling below the surface is a lot of cancellations, a lot of things that might not happen, uh, a different environment in events that are coming up in the fall, if they come up. And so we want to stay real. We want to stay connected to what we know is the reality that's just beyond what we're currently experiencing. There's still some very difficult months ahead. And with that being said, the, the one thing we do control is how we go about our day and how we go about our health and our fitness and our wellness and controlling the things we can control. And that is our consistency, our perseverance, our fitness, repetition, our habits, and how we model the way for those around us. Again, the beacon of um, endurance and health and fitness that we are for our children, for our community. And not that this is some sort of big community action, but our consistent behavior, how we approach our days is being observed by many around us. And as we train through the summer, as we stay connected to that fitness that within eight to 10 weeks, we can launch to a big um, event if we needed to. Remember, that's what I keep talking about. We want to have a solid basis of fitness and we can even build that basis of fitness as we're going that within a short pivot and training for six to eight weeks, we're ready for said event. And as we go through this summer, as we gently increase the volume, as we gently reintroduce swimming and gyms and strength work back in, we're gently increasing that platform, that base that we can launch from. And that's pretty exciting. So let's keep that in mind, be real with ourselves, knowing what the second half of the year might bring, but also being real with ourselves that we're doing this because we love health. And we love the sensations of our daily check-in of training and hours to ourself and being out in nature and exhaling and allowing to take all that in and that we're not necessarily always doing this for an event, but to be a better version of ourselves, to be fitter, healthier, stronger, more balanced, more creative, more um, displaying more vitality and joy with our life and our day all because of this fitness and training and consistency and habits and strength and all that. Have a great week and I will talk to you in a few days.